Ship ahoy, mates. We're happy to have you on board the old gospel ship. As I stand here on the bow and hear those waves lapping up against the side of the ship, I think about heaven. One of these days, we're going to take a voyage to a beautiful port called heaven. Listen to the crew members now as they sing our Christian pirate theme song. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this episode of the True Tunes Podcast, we visit with an artist who has left his mark on more music than just about anyone I know. If you're looking for a perennial MVP candidate, Phil Madeira is your man. not just about the volume of work here. There are few musicians who have had the kind of impact on the music world that Phil has had. His work as a songwriter, producer, and a multi-instrumentalist has been making country, gospel, rock, indie, Americana, folk, Celtic, worship, alternative, and yes, CCM music sound better for nearly half a century. He has also been an artist in his own right, releasing collections of his own songs to a smaller but passionate audience. Oh, and he is also an accomplished painter, a published author, and a raconteur in the first degree. You don't log the kinds of miles and experience he has without building up a reservoir of stories, and no one tells a story like Phil. Now cut to 2007 when I get a call from Emmy Lou's manager. Now, Emmy had heard me playing with Buddy, and we'd become friendly over the years. But one day she had, we were at a gig in San Francisco, and she sat in with us, and I'm playing B3 and accordion. And she said to me afterwards, she said, well, I'm sorry, Phil, you know, I've just never, you know, I've never been a fan of the of the B3 and of course I hear this and it's kind of because I, I at this point I'm thinking I wonder if I'm ever going to get to play with this person mm-hmm. and she says to me essentially no right. you're not you know she goes I'm sorry Phil I'm just not a fan of the B3 and I said to her that's because you've had the wrong guy playing it. <laughs> I just, you know, I kind of wonder, if I ever going to stop with this behavior? I, I, I assume not. But um. Madeira got his start in the earliest days of Christian music back during the Jesus movement of the early 1970s, before contemporary Christian music was a genre and there was no industry built up around the artists. Although most fans first discovered him as a member of Phil Keggy's band in the mid-1970s, he actually cut his teeth years earlier as the drummer of a folk rock band called Morning Glory. Spoiler alert, you're going to get to hear a little bit of that band on this episode, some music that, as far as we know, has never been shared publicly before. Years later, Phil became the B3 player, and often a songwriter or producer for Christian and gospel artists in Nashville. His resume in that world is too long to list exhaustively here, but just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, a few highlights include 
Ashley Cleveland, Terry Scott Taylor and Daniel Amos, Jeff Moore in the Distance, Kim Hill, Margaret Becker, Susan Ashton, Jimmy Abeg, Rick Kua, Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Newsboys, PFR, Steve Taylor, Michael Card, Charlie Peacock, Randy Stonehill, The Waiting, The Choir, The Lost Dogs, Babby Mason, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Rick Elias, Jackie Velazquez, The Electrics, Cindy Morgan, John Michael Talbot, Sarah Groves, Derek Webb, Kevin Max, Crowder, Edwin Hawkins, and many others. In 1990s, Madeira intentionally transitioned away from the confines of Christian music and toward the rootsier side of country, rock, pop, and jazz that would eventually become known as Americana. One or two years and a couple of changes later, including adding lap steel guitar to his bag of tricks, it seemed like everyone started calling Madeira to play on their records, write songs with them, or join them on the road. He contributed in one way or another to projects by Sixpence None the Richer, Bill Maloney and Vigilantes of Love, Travis Tritt, Buddy and Julie Miller, Vanessa Williams, Pierce Pettis, Greg Trooper, Allison Krauss, Garth Brooks, Brooks Williams, Solomon Burke, Little Big Town, Bruce Hornsby and Ricky Skaggs, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Sean Mullins, Mindy Smith, Matt Carney, The Civil Wars, Hammock, The Water Boys, Rita Coolidge, John Schofield, Keb Moe, Taj Mahal, and of course, Emmylou Harris, with whom he has been very closely associated as a member of her Red Dirt Boys band for many years now. I was honored to get to visit with Phil in his Nashville home, which happens to be right down the street from the famed Bluebird Cafe, where we spent hours talking about his journey in music and life in general. It's a long, strange trip indeed, but it has landed him in a special place, a place that is being cataloged very artfully on a series of recent solo albums, which we will feature in the Jukebox segment on part two of this double episode. Yes. We're making this one a double. There's just too much territory to cover in one show. So on this first installment, we'll focus on Phil's early years and his transition into the Americana all-star many know him to be today, inserting music from his catalog and some of the tracks he has played on, written, or produced for others. Following a voice in faithful pursuit, I'm searching my soul to do. So join me now in Phil's living room, surrounded by paintings, vintage instruments, amplifiers, and other tools of the trade as we talk about an ongoing life in music and how this engineer of soul has navigated the strange terrain of faith, relationships, skill, and the music business and come out smiling. 
what I want to do is start by rewinding the tape back to your roots and where you started off and kind of the, the very beginning of your musical journey and kind of take us back to early Phil and the, set the stage for us. You know, I was fortunate to have parents who were musical. and uh, My mom was a, you know, typical church musician, great organist, great pianist. I mean, she was really a remarkable uh, musician. In fact, I don't, and I don't know if this is a boast or not, it's kind of a funny fact, but when my mother was at Wheaton College, not far from where you lived, um, she was Billy Graham's first singer. Oh my gosh. Isn't that weird? Wow. And um, anyway, <laughs> but so I, but my mother always said I, was, I came out of the womb drumming. And so the first thing that I was really interested in was drums, and I drummed for many years. And of course, we had a piano, and I would mess around on it. She tried to teach me. I couldn't stand having her teach me. Um, I, I just couldn't handle it. I mean, she was, you know, she was a great mom, but you know, you only want your parent to tell you to do so much. And lessons with her were not good. Then I took them with another person. And I just really wanted to be a boy. I did not want piano lessons. I did, I, and if I was going to play piano, I, I wanted to play jazz and blues and Beatles songs. And the first inkling I had of it, of this, was I must have been maybe, I want to say like eight or something. And we were at my Auntie Eva's house up in New York. And my cousin Robert, who's the oldest of all of my cousins, he was playing a song on piano called Sentimental Journey. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and it, I'm sure it was like ultra cheesy, but there was enough bounce to that. And there was enough, I heard that blues influence. I wasn't sure what it was, but I was like, teach me how to play that. And he taught me that. I, I need to remind him of this. He's quite elderly now, but I need to remind him. That and my mom playing Mahalia Jackson records is super important. Wow. And then, of course, I became a drummer when I was in college. I played in a band from Wheaton called Morning Glory. In fact, right over there is a cassette that somebody just sent me. Uh, one of our band members brought me that cassette, and I just need to find a cassette player and digitize it. I'm really curious to see what we sounded like. People laugh, but that don't bother me. I say people may laugh, but that don't bother me. You know, I make a lot of money and I'm happy as I can be. I may be crazy, but Lord knows I'm cool. I said I may be crazy, Lord knows I'm cool. I never went to church and I never went to school. But and that's had, what, roughly when? That would be 1971. We were like a country rock band. We were all uh, people of faith. I played drums and a little bit of piano in that. And that's when I really first started songwriting. We went over to Sweden. We were not like a, there was no such thing as a Christian band. Everybody in that band went to Wheaton College. I was taking a year off from school, and I was in that band. 
And we did one song that we considered a Christian song called Jesus is Just All Right. And this but, is before the Doobies did it. it but was, it was the same song. It was the, yeah, it was yeah. Like you were covering it. You know, we knew it from the birds. Right. And the birds knew it from somebody before that. But that was my first Early, band. Yeah, yeah, that was your first band. And kind of an example of an early mm, dichotomy between the idea of Christians or believers playing in a rock band who would do a song that was an interesting song. That song was never a flat-out Christian song, but it was also not a flat-out secular song. It was kind of riding that line between the two. You could, And that's yeah. the brilliance of that song. That's why the birds could do it with a wink, yeah. and the doobies could do it with a wink, and then DC Talk could do it with absolutely no wink. Like I played on DC Talk's version. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm playing drums. You're playing I'm drums playing on drums, that? I'm playing electric guitar, and I'm playing B3 on that track. Uh, all of that on <laughs> <Yeah>. that track? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. And I went back to college and really didn't think I'd have a career in music. I was an art student, really didn't know what I wanted to do. These guys came to town called Love Song, and they really, I will never forget, especially Jay Truax, the bass player in that band, they saw something in me. So I encountered them three times, twice at Taylor, the second time of which Phil Kagi was playing guitar with them. The third time, they had morphed into something called Wing and a Prayer. And I wound up opening for them on piano. Now, by this time, I'm kind of in kind of a Randy Newman phase, which, of course, in many ways has not left me. I'm, I'm always going to... There's a certain element of, I don't know, 20s ragtime music that sneaks in. But those guys really were wonderful to me and then at Taylor I met you know I didn't even want to go hear them I was depressed I, you know I had had an encounter with a girlfriend that didn't work out and I really the last thing I wanted to go, do was go hear love song and I had a friend saying no 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 they've got this unbelievable guitar player and so I went and my friend was Probably you would have done something like this, John. He was like, no, we got to go to their sound check, too. You know? oh, geez, I definitely you know? would. So I go to this sound check. Actually, it was at Marion College up the road. Yeah. I go to this sound check, and, and Jay Truax and John Mailer, their drummer, and this little guy, Phil Kagger, are jamming, and we come in. Well, the, the drummer and the bass player recognize me. They're like, hey, man. Very California. Hey, man. <laughs> And my friend is this gigantic football player from Taylor, and he's from Ohio. That's why he knows who Keggy is. And he's like, hey, you got to meet my friend. He's, he's a great piano player. And, and Phil was like, and this is, this is one of the charming things about him, was he said, well, come on up and play. And that happened. And then that night he said to me, I think we're going to be in a band together someday. That was 1973, 1976, I moved to 
love in the cult that Phil was part of. I don't mind calling it a cult. It, you know, it was pretty crazy. Um, and I joined that band. then you were you were in phil's band and that it, yeah yeah it's so fun it's an iconic record to a lot of people. oh yeah it actually means yeah when i when i i mean i haven't listened to it in years but i mean this week on social media i've been hearing from people about that record and i'm like as well as about my first christian record which i just don't have any affection for either of those records i have affection for the heart of the songwriter that I was. I hear good stuff in terms of what is the thing that is trying to be said. Um, the Kagi stuff, there's really, there's no good material. I mean, this is, I'm just gonna be harsh. If, is that okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, so, and it, you know, and I'm much more interested in what, you know, what, what has transpired after Christian music for me, but of course, you know who you are is where you've been you know and um but yeah that record just has no good material on it we were a good live band i think you know being a good live band means you're connecting and things are you're letting things happen out of your control that might go well and a lot of times they did both phil and i were very adventurous in terms of just saying hey play you know, E minor, go to C7, you know, or whatever. We'd, we'd just be yelling chords at each other. It was kind of like, I feel like we were kind of like, a, sort of like a Grateful Dead band mm -hmm. when we were live. But in the studio, that stuff, you know, that stuff is hard to corral. And, and we didn't have a real producer. We had a fellow named Peter Hopper, who was, he was one of the, quote, elders in this church we were part of you know a real producer like had we had someone like i i was had dinner with wayne kirkpatrick last night and we, we were actually talking about this and i said you know i just wonder what would have happened if we'd had someone like like a brown banister or just a regular you know uh general marketplace record producer who would have demanded these songs you're not ready Mm -hmm. You've got to have songs, you know, but, you know. And it seems like there's a difference that the, the journey of the artist, when you're on a path and you're evolving and you're pushing yourself and for you to go back and look at something, uh, you're going to see it from a completely different perspective than the fan, the listener who uh, music and albums, those represent a portrait of them at that point in their life. Yeah. And so the, that album reflects who they were, uh, how thin they were, how excited they were about their faith, how simple their life was, uh, how thick their hair was, how oh, you yeah. know simple it's, their everything. And so, you're, it's kind of like describing an elephant from two different ends. And so, um, for you to say, "Well, we know which end I'm describing." <laughs> You beat me to the punchline. That's, you know, and for for somebody else to say that album was so important, 
you can both be telling the truth because you're just describing the same thing from different I mean, that's such a great perspective, John. We are a family You know, the funny thing is, is that, you know, I had my Citizen of Heaven record, which was really the only Christian, you know, I was a Christian artist for two minutes, waited 10 or 11 years and put out Off Kilter. And what's interesting to me, and Off Kilter came out of such a, such a hard time. I actually am able to embrace everything from Off Kilter right on up till today so you know maybe I don't know nine or ten albums I'm happy with those things because I did not have the constraints of I I didn't have the constraints of a label saying well we need to do this we need to be careful about this I did that I did three horseshoes in 96 or 97 and then didn't do anything until gosh I don't know 2000 12 I think after Mercyland you know I had just given up being an artist uh, and then the woman that I was involved with at the time I did Mercyland she was the one that said you ought to you ought to be out playing again because she had remembered seeing me you know at 12th and Porter years ago and so it's interesting that I had someone say you have a voice um, uh, and I think artists need that I think artists need that you know even though we do this for ourselves and you know the feeling mm-hmm. because you make art as well you make music and at some point somebody has got to fill that space that needs the encouragement you know and uh and so, and I kind of haven't stopped since then. Right. Not like I had a plan. Not like I saw the goal. You gotta whittle down to nothing before you'll ever be made whole. I've been carving, stripping back the bar. Rounding off the edges of a jagged heart. One thing we kind of skipped over was that, so you were playing in Phil's band, and then at some point you you left Phil's band, but you became a musician for Phil and many other people. You were You were in Nashville playing on a ton of records, and it seemed like I saw you playing in Chicago on stage with any number of artists. Um, you were an A-list first call B3 player for all of the top Christian CCM artists mm-hmm. for sure, and then started to migrate out of that. So tell me a little bit more about, was that a conscious choice? Was it just a path that emerged in front of you? Or how did you see that pattern uh, for yourself between being in Phil's band to becoming sort of a gun for hire for people? Well, you know, I started with Keggy in 76. I left in 78. I wanted to get married. The cult, they wanted to determine who I would marry. They wanted to determine if I could marry. And it was just like, you know, uh, I I wound up uh, 
leaving because I couldn't, you know, they wouldn't allow me to marry Eleanor, who, who uh, I was married to for 25 years. And what's funny about that is when Elle and I got divorced, and we are very good friends. We've got two awesome daughters. I feel like we're a, we, we're a, we are a case study in terms of a a, a successful divorce. Um, but what's fun, what is funny is that when I um, got divorced, the first thing that came to my mind was these elders all oh, those oh, years oh. ago, poo-pooing this <laughs> marriage. But so we, you know, so I left Phil in 78. And then in 79, we had a couple of reunion dates and I was kind of allowed back, you know. I, I'm grateful for those days because out of those days, you know, one of my closest friendships, Ben Pearson, who I hike with every Saturday. If that's all love, that loving gave me, I'll take it, you know. But um, so I left, I moved to Rhode Island, tried to be a solo artist, made a little cassette on a, oh, it's horrible sounding, on a, on a four track. And that's when I really, you know, now I was writing this Christian music. Now I was, you know, it wasn't like my Morning Glory days, which was the band that I started with, where we were just writing songs. Now I was theologic, theologizing, what would the word be? I was thinking about theology, I guess. And, um, and eventually I ran out of steam. I'm in Rhode Island, man. What am I going to do there? You know, and, um, and I would make noise with Eleanor about, I got to get out of here. And she didn't want to leave. You know, she had her family there and her brothers. And, but one day I, one day I, Posed that question again. And it was weird because we were, I mean, this is kind of trippy to talk about, but we were on our way to play a gig in Indiana. I posed the question, I, you, know, I, you know, I said, I, I feel like if, I, if we don't leave Rhode Island, I'm going to creatively die. As I'm saying that, we literally cross the dotted line that separates Rhode Island from Connecticut. Now, I've, often, I've always wondered, I know this sounds crazy, would Eleanor have answered differently if we were a mile before that Connecticut border, that road, you know? But anyway, we literally crossed the border, and she said, well, then we should move. And I've always thought, man, I bet if we'd been a mile back, <laughs> she would have said we can't go. I always thought there was like Something some about spiritual, from you know, it felt like some C.S. Lewis idea you know but anyway but we played the gig and played this little gig solo gig in indiana and a friend of mine was at the gig and we went out after and i said we're moving to la because all the people i knew were in la and uh the fellows from sweet comfort band had actually been real kind to me and brought me out there and uh, so we, we kind of knew a few people, you know, and I still, at this point, my vision for myself was, well, this is where the road is led is with all these Christian people, you know, and this guy, when I said, we're going to move to LA and this friend of ours said, I think you should go to Nashville. And when he said that, it's one of the very few times in my life where I have felt like this is, I, yeah, I even, I'm hesitant to even say it now just because it's so out of my box in terms of I don't like thinking about you know God said to me I hate that stuff 
But that was it for me. I felt like God had really, it was like a bell. Yes, this is what you're supposed to do. And so we did. Eleanor got a job working for a band called Petra. She worked so much built. She worked for seven years uh, before we had a child. And yeah, it was almost like some crazy Bible story where she worked for seven years. We have a kid. All of a sudden, I become the B3 player in Christian music. Also, that is when I started making a living, when people really started recording my songs. And and that, you know, that that lasted a while. Came down south, a young man, to play that Nashville wreck. I saw the light one snowy night, and I packed my carpet bag. Took some getting used to Life was different than up north For a Rhode Island Yankee On Jefferson Davis Court I'd open up my mouth to speak Folks would tell me, son, slow down I learned to draw my words out long Like honey dripping from a spout When I called my mother She said, you don't talk like us no more You're a Rhode Island Yankee On Jefferson Davis That's what she said I remember talking to you As you were intentionally shifting it it seemed like you made some tactical choices some career choices to put you in a place where the horizons were going to shift for mm-hmm. you what did you do and what you know, started those choices and then what what kind of shifts did you have to make to I, open and this? i don't know if i was anticipating a horizon you know i'm so much a moment guy versus a future guy Although I, I, I certainly agree with you that the choice you make in a certain moment is going to affect that horizon or whatever. But 1988, I was at the Bluebird on a Monday night to hear a band called the King Snakes, And I think this, they were before your time here. Mm-hmm. But so this is 1988. And the King Snakes were basically this blues band where you you felt like you were listening to real old blues uh, electric you know the oldest electric stuff and they had a guy named Mike Henderson who just embodied the spirit of old music and and then the other guy the other guitar player in that band was Kenny Greenberg Oh man! To you know, he's married to Ashley Cleveland and is one of the top studio people here in Nashville and a dear friend. And I'll never forget. I'll never forget. You know, Kenny actually. You know, taking a solo and stepping from the stage onto somebody's table. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he's drinks sitting there. He's on the. Ta- you know, it was fabulous. You know, and I remember that night remembering who I was before. Christian music 
I was just a, I was the kid that wanted to play Sentimental Journey. I was the guy that just wanted to play music that felt good and and um, and didn't have to be about something and didn't have to have merit beyond how good it just was or felt. And I went home that night and I wrote two songs, both of which are on a record I did of mostly blues stuff called Original Sinner. And um, which I, you know, I did that not all, not too long ago, sometime in the 2010s. And um, one of those songs was called "Change of Heart," and one of them was called "Storm Rolling In." And I wrote them on my—I had an old national guitar that I still have. Wrote them on that, and and, and I knew because I wasn't exceptional on guitar. It was kind of like I knew if I sat down a piano, I would, I would write something complicated. And somehow, sitting down at that guitar, that transformed things. starting to play shows like at 12th and Porter would be like myself and either James Hallahan Jr. on guitar me on guitar James on guitar sometimes Kenny Meeks and then uh, different drummers you know Mike Rodofsky on drums a lot Byron House on bass Dennis Holt on drums and I'd play Cafe Milano and just do a blues mm -hmm. set and I wasn't making records but I was just doing my thing and Brown I forgot about this but Brown Bannister who the, the acclaimed Christian music producer, he came out and heard me play one night at 12th and Porter. He was like, I gotta record this stuff. Cause it, I mean, it wasn't just hardcore. It wasn't just blues, you know, there were, uh, one of the songs was I Believe in You, which Buddy Miller sang on, on the first Mercyland record um, uh, that I had written in 88. 88 was a big year for tunes for me. One of them was also, one of the songs that Brown cut was, was called Flash in the Pan, which remained unreleased until recently, <laughs> wow. you know, and of course it was less profane than, than it is now. I, I, I tweaked the lyric a little bit for probably for the worse. But anyway, so Brown, you know, this is, I think, 92. And Brown is like, man, Christian music needs what you're doing. They need this real visceral stuff. And I mean, it's so odd to me because Brown, if, if, if you think of Brown as anything musically, you don't think of him as visceral. You don't think of him as, you wouldn't think of him as recognizing that need. But I, you know, I loved working with him. We cut five songs. And 
before he started pitching, I, 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 I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I just remembered, man, now I've done this Christian music thing before and, you know, I had done it with Refuge Records in 86 or something. And I just thought, I am going to be a disappointment to the label. I'm going to be a disappointment to the average audience and I'm going to be a disappointment to myself. And concurrent to that what year did mark heard pass away 92 so the year mark passed away lynn nichols and i went and played with phil keggy in la the week that mark's memorial happened so we went to this memorial service yeah and here's Buddy and Julie, you know, whom I had never met. Now we're at this thing and there they are. And I, I think they must have played all my tears. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um, the next day we were playing at Big Bear Mountain or whatever it's called. And we're in our dressing room and Buddy walks in and I'm like oh hey that's that guy from yesterday he and I just we hit it off we stayed in touch and then buddy then they moved here and he would he would call me to come play on something play lap steel play accordion play b3 and then that led to gigs with him and Julie and then and very quickly Julie disappeared and it became just buddy so between me Stepping out as a solo artist and playing clubs and doing that. And then joining this guy who in turn, he would throw me production work that he couldn't handle. So I wound up producing two records on an artist named Greg Trooper that are well worth checking out. Uh, I wound up meeting Sammy Horner. That's right. And, you know, gosh, I think I've done four or five records with Sammy. Remains one of my dear friends. In fact, mm -hmm. I think the last time I saw him was at your house. Um, That's right. So, uh, and that led, of course, to to Emmy. Meanwhile, I didn't record anything until in ninety in ninety five. I guess ninety five. I still had a toe in Christian music, and ninety five. I saw my marriage for what it was and off kilter is such a record of longing it's a painful record I put that out right before a tour in England with, with this duo called Phil and John John Hartley Phil Bagley John remains one of my dearest friends a year later I go Actually, no, when I did the tour with those guys, I wrote all the material from Three Horseshoes, which is a joyous record. It's a real redemptive record. And Silent Planet put that out, put Avocado Fault Wine out, which I produced, you know. For Terry Taylor. Terry Taylor's record. So the Avocado record was like, Terry came in, we cut everything, of, we cut him and his guitar to a click, and then I went to work. And that remains a record I'm proud of. Oh, yeah. Because the material is first class. 
and the limitations forced my hand to step it up in a lot of ways. Two more drinks and the cab outside will become a limo. You and me, we're gonna hang on tight to this fragile spell. But girl, it ain't easy, and I get queasy as hell. Looking at a map where every road meets back. Don't go away. The True Tunes podcast will be back shortly. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. You you were producing more. You were writing songs that other people were cutting. And you're playing on the other instruments. You were staking out a lot of territory in the 90s and the early 2000s. How much of that was the kind of necessary thing that a lot of us multiple personalities have to do just to make ends meet and how much of that was because you just like to always have a lot of different things going on percentage wise it would be zero percent about the money it's not about brilliance you know i don't want anybody to think that i think i'm uh, a master at any of this stuff i'm really aware of what a you know, a master at the B3 will do or a guitar or piano, any of these things. The greatest ability I have is is the willingness to risk and to be emotional. And that is across the board. I know this about myself. That what people responded to when I would play B3 was, I am, you know... In my opinion, like if there was a chorus coming, I am going to usher you into that chorus. All of a sudden, you're going to have this moment, and it would involve probably a glissando with my left hand just, you know, right. just crushing as I spin the Leslie and all the science of all that. Uh, same with the lap steel, you know, what am I doing with the volume pedal and that spirit, and even accordion, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, accordion, which, you know, had you told me. 30 years ago, hey, one day you're going to play accordion. You know, it's like a joke, you know. But I was with my nephew. It's so funny, John, how this all comes back to uh, the western suburbs of Chicago because (laughs) I was with my nephew, who, my nephew David uh, Madeira. He has a music career because because I poured into him. Mm -hmm. And... um, and of course, he's exceptionally talented. But um, anyway, I'm with him. He's seven years old. It's 1994. I'm about to do a tour with Rich Mullins. And we're in this music store, and I see a little accordion. I just knew somehow that this might be appreciated by Rich. Oh, yeah. No, I hadn't listened to his music. I didn't know anything. I mean, I had played on the, the world as I best remember it. So I bought this accordion. Now cut to 2007 when I get a call from Emmy Lou's manager. Now, Emmy had heard me play with Buddy, and we'd become friendly over the years. But one day she had, we were at a gig in San Francisco, and she sat in with us, and I'm playing B3 and accordion. And she said to me afterwards, she said, well, I'm sorry, Phil, you know, 
I've just never, you know, I've never been a fan of the of the B3. And of course, I hear this and it's kind of, because I, I at this point I'm thinking, I wonder if I'm ever going to get to play with this person. Mm-hmm. And she says to me, essentially, no, right. you're not. You know, she goes, I'm sorry, Phil, I'm just not a fan of the B3. And I said to her, that's because you've had the wrong guy playing it. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I kind of wonder, am I ever going to stop with this behavior? I, I, I assume not. But um, but I'm teasing her, of course, you know. She got a kick out of that because she's toured for years with guys who are, you know, yeah. having fun. And But she said, but I love the accordion. 2007 happens. I get a call from her manager. And it's a woman saying, hey, Phil, this is Emily Dederick. I'm... Emmy Lou Harris's day-to-day manager, and she would like to invite you to be in her all-star band for 2008. I, all of a sudden, have like a couple of tears coming down my, wow. I, I say, yes, you know, but I, I got these tears coming down my face. Man, this is like the greatest thing in the world. And it really has been. And Red Dirt Boys, that's a whole nother thing. That band, which is Will Kimbrough, Chris Donahue, myself, and Brian Owings, you know, we we make music together. Mm-hmm. And we I went to her and I said, can we use this name? Because she had named it Red Dirt Boys. I said, can, do you mind if we use this name? We're going to make a record. She she goes, only if I can sing on it. <laughs> oh, that's a so tough we, demand. We're about to, yeah, we're about to kickstart actually both. We've made two records now. We're about to kickstart both of them. This must be some kind of love As if the sculptor has become a sculpture As if the writer has become the book As if the painter has become the painting The creator has become poet He's created. You regularly make a delineation because of your experience and your background talking about Christian music. And you're talking about the formal stuff known as contemporary Christian music, the stuff that comes from a particular industry made for a particular audience. But um, obviously there's gospel music and there's a lot of music that has gospel content, gospel mm. ideas, spiritual content. That's, that's not what you mean when you're talking like, that's oh. not, that doesn't fall under that category. So just for the sake of people who are listening, who are not from that background, how and when <laughs> did you start to see a line between what you are calling Christian music and everything else. And why do you think that line formed in the first place? You know, it's so, I mean, it's a fantastic question. And I, I probably should say, you know, I i have lifelong friendships because of the industry that you and I refer to as Christian music, you know. I, I And I, you know, built a life from at least a decade of involvement, of, of, of full-time involvement over there, you know. I, you know, like like we say, you know, never say never. I mean, if uh, I, I mean, I'd love nothing more to make, you know, a, a really wonderful record with somebody like Amy Grant that I admire, you know, 
I think I recognize the delineation immediately because the music that I love that is gospel oriented would be Mahalia or would be Sister Rosetta Tharp, would be Blind Willie Johnson, would be Ralph Stanley. Um, I mean, there is so much wealth in just American music, um, a, a, a wealth of of uh, music that that does say yes. Part of the human experience is to connect with with God, to sing about Jesus. And when I was younger, I would hear stuff and I would think because I had grown up in the church and, you know, I had an idea of some people are Christians, some people are not. So I would hear some song. I would hear James Taylor sing, you know, won't you look down upon me, Jesus? And I would think, oh, I wonder if he's a Christian, you know? And and the funny thing is, is the fact is, is that question, as I hear it come out of my mouth right now, is like... The answer was, well, he's a child of God. The spirit is there, you know, and um, and and don't worry about his dogma. But I, but the delineation to me, and, and especially you know when I listen, when I like like if we were to listen to my my Citizen of Heaven record, which I I love the heart of this guy, this you know guy who wrote these songs from the age of maybe 23 to 30 who really loves God I, and, and that guy, that version of me loves God in some ways more than this version of me does it's like romance it's like it's like you're excited you know. and I think actually Struck by the Love someone mentioned this song on the emerging record, Struck by the Love and there, I mean, I had somebody tell me that was the greatest song I'd ever written, uh, to which I said it was until I wrote the next song. But um, but I hear the heart of a guy who just wants to connect to God. And I remember writing that song in my parents' basement in a real, almost, almost Pentecostal sort of moment, although I would not want to mislead anyone to think that it was like... Uh, uh, in, in any way ecstatic but I was just in such a place of wanting to connect with God that's what I hear when I hear those music those those songs but I also hear indoctrination that is the difference you know when you listen to Mahalia you're not hearing dogma I don't think or theology in the same way that the gatekeepers in Christian music, I mean, it's a pretty, it's an ironically charismatic and Calvinistic world over there. I mean, there are certain stations that, you know, gosh, man, the little, you can't be whimsical about God, whereas Sister Rosetta Tharp, when she's singing, you know. um, Over uh, my head or something like that exactly the song I was thinking over my head it's whimsical we don't know it's you know so but I've always known that I've always known there's a difference
This seems like as good a spot as any to step away for now. There's a lot more to come in part two, including a special jukebox feature that will take a look at Phil's recent trifecta of solo projects, Providence, Open Heart, and his newest release, Hornet's Nest. We'll talk with Phil about those records and the stories behind the songs, the pain of loss, the hard lessons learned. We'll dig into the difference between co-writing and writing on your own and being willing to let the chips fall when things get hard. Phil will talk about how he breaks down his creative life, budgeting his time, a new project he is working on, and more. You won't want to miss it. That's going to do it for this episode. If you're new to the show, welcome. There are some great episodes in the archives waiting for you. Please take a minute to sign up for our email list at truetunes.com and please help spread the word about the show. Our best marketing is your word of mouth. And last but not least, if you would like to support the show, please check out our Patreon program. Your support of as little as $5 a month helps us do what we do here and unlock some special rewards, including early access to high-fidelity wave files of the show, extra content exclusive to our backers, live Zoom gatherings, and more. Go to patreon.com slash truetunes or find the link on the show notes page to get on board. And thanks. We'll be back with part two of our conversation with Phil very soon. In the meantime, go get caught up on the previous episodes you may have missed and bring your friends into the conversation. For a full list of all the music used on this episode of the podcast, check out the show notes page at truetunes.com. Thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for their instrumental mix of Full Circle we use as our theme song. And of course, hundreds of miles to my right, but always in my ear, my brilliant and talented co-producer, engineer, and co-conspirator Bruce A. Brown, who mixes the show, finds the music, puts it all together and makes it sound so so good bruce you're the man and you know it the contents of the podcast are protected by u.s copyright law and are the intellectual property of gyroscope productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten material everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions the program is intended for the private use of our listening audience gyroscope productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or p.o box 60401 nashville tennessee 37206 until next time this is jjt inviting you to dig deep listen hard love well stay tuned and stay true
mother wasn't at a marvelous show.